Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, September 5th episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. Since December of 2018, we have featured over 125 poets in 14 countries on five continents, and we hope to continue to do that with your support. And you can support us by going to poetsandmuses.com forward slash donate and donate via either PayPal or your preferred credit cards. With us today is Marsha Peschke, with whom I will be discussing her poem, Multiple Stories in Me, and my poem, Goodbyes. Before we do that, however, I am going to go over some virtual poetry events taking place during the week of September 6th. On Wednesday, September 8th, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, White Whale Bookstore will be hosting their virtual poetry reading with Gabriella Artemage, Madeline Barnes, and Michelle Maher. You can find out more information at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. Again, that's at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. From 6.30 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, the Lake County Arts Council will be hosting their virtual writer's circle reading plus open mic hosted by Georgina Marie. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 362-746-645-389-018. Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 362-746-645-389-018. On Thursday, September 9th, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, White Whale Bookstore will be hosting their virtual poetry reading with Matea Svetlina and Yona Harvey. You can find out more information at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. Again, that's at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. On Friday, September 10th, from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, the White Whale Bookstore will be hosting their virtual poetry book launch with I Was a Bell by M. Soledad Caballero with Celeste Ganey, Sarah Williams Devereaux, and Cameron Barnett. You can find out more information at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. Again, that's at whitewhalebookstore.com forward slash events. From 6.30 to 9.30 p.m. Mountain Daylight Time, Sacred Voices will be hosting their monthly open mic featuring Morgan Tora. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 540-760-043-877-706. Again, that's at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 540-760-043-877-706. From Saturday, September 11th to next Sunday, September 19th, Poetry Center San Jose will be hosting their 7th annual San Jose Poetry Festival. You can find out more information at facebook.com forward slash events. 
forward slash 168-294-942-078-627. Again, that's at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 168-294-942-078-627. On Sunday, September 12th, from 4.45 to 7 p.m. British time, Andrina, Leanne, and G-Joy will be hosting their Adult Survivors Open Mic. You can find out more information at Adult Survivors Open Mic on Instagram. Again, that's at Adult Survivors Open Mic on Instagram. From 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, Pure Ink Poetry, hosted by our past poet guest Brandon Williamson, will be hosting his Pure Ink Poetry Slam worldwide and you can find out more information at pureinkpoetry.com. Again, that's at pureinkpoetry.com. And now let us turn to our Poet Guest of the Week, Marsha Peschke. Hi, Marsha. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Of course. You brought with you today your poem, Multiple Stories in Me. Before we begin, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I'm Marsha Peschke, and I'm local in South Africa. Mm -hmm. I have a background in drama and performance studies, and that has opened up a whole world of different creative experiences for me. And I tend to focus on writing in the form of self-narrative and poetry, and I am also heavily involved in movement um, as a form of healing for the body. Mm, mm. Wow, yeah, I, I feel like um, the arts has that very therapeutic aspect to it that I think maybe we're only starting to realize. Yeah. Are you working in arts therapy in any way? So before returning to South Africa this year, I spent five years in South Korea and Thailand. And in Thailand, I spent some time with a group called Project C. Mm -hmm. And this was a community of artists that would produce work focusing on movement as a form of discovering your feelings, where your feelings come from, being kind to the body, healing the body. And so I would say that that experience was very personal for me Mm. and it really sort of cemented the idea in me this idea that I I feel so involved with the idea of healing and I've focused a lot on words and I find myself thinking more of the body and the mind being connected and so I'm excited about this idea of using words and movement as a form of healing. And I see myself going in that direction. I'm really not only interested in it as an artist, but also to possibly go into dance movement psychotherapy as a professional. Mm. Yeah, that's really fascinating because I, again i think like we're only realizing the interdependence between the body and the mind and how the movement of one can actually affect the, the health of the other mm. so it's great that you're, you're talking about that and you're working in that as well 
in terms of your own writing, when did you come to poetry? You know, when I was in school, it always felt like something that was unfamiliar to me because for a long time I was interested in other kinds of writing mm. and I wanted to be a scriptwriter for foam. And I think it wasn't until high school, and this is thanks to my high school English teacher, that mm -hmm. I felt like I was able to access poetry. Mm -hmm. um, I found poems by Seamus Heaney and Wilfred Owen and Sylvia mm -hmm. Plath, and I just felt like the feelings in those poems were so immediate and urgent. And I think it's the way that I grew up. So I was basically in a household where expressing your feelings, it was, let's say, a luxury or it wasn't the norm. Mm -hmm. And so coming across those kinds of poems, it just, I was like, oh, okay, I, I can express myself in this way through words. And it, this is a safe space where I can do that. And so I've always been interested in different forms of writing. I love Greek plays as well, because the dialogue is heightened. And mm. for me, that also makes me think of poetry. But it was really in my high school English classes where it suddenly felt more accessible and I felt like it was a space that I wanted to explore. Right, right. I, I wonder also because you're from South Africa when you were growing up if poetry was important also because of the turmoil of the country. I mean, even though, I, I don't know your age, I'm assuming that you were growing up when apartheid ended already but you know it didn't stop everything yeah that's true i would have to say that there was a stronger focus on theater plays mm -hmm. in south africa during apartheid and theater plays were used to inform audiences locally and internationally of what the situation was. And in South Africa, there's a strong history of workshopping plays. And that actually comes from trying to hide from apartheid police mm. so that there was no evidence that you were conspiring against the government. Mm. Um, there was a strong presence with poetry as well. Mm -hmm. But I would have to say that I was more aware of the theater plays that were being staged. And I know that there were women writing novels or writing their own narratives because a lot of the theater plays were written and staged by male performers. Mm. Um, and so fiction became a place for women where they could express themselves. Mm. And again, I feel like it was only later in high school where I came across South African poets. But then again, that might explain why I found myself in theater from a young age and then discovered poetry much later on. Right, right. Yeah, I, I think it's really interesting and important that you mentioned about women and their writing in terms of the sort of, I guess it's a niche where women find themselves because it's a it's a layering of oppression, right? It's not just um, despite the fact that apartheid is over, as I mentioned before, it's not like everything suddenly became fine. 
there's still a lot of racial discrimination. There's a lot of apartheid legacy um, and also colonialism's legacy that is working through the country. Um, and then there is the unaddressed uh, or under-addressed issue of misogyny. I wonder if you wanted to tell us a little bit about that, especially given what you tend to write about. There was a time where I read a description of South Africa in a book looking at race relations in contemporary South Africa, and it said South Africa is still in its infancy as a democracy, which is absolutely true because we people refer to us as the rainbow nation Mm -hmm. and that's something that is uncomfortable for us because the truth is the colors sit next to each other they don't mix and so our issues are quite complex because there is the misogyny during our struggle for liberation many women were not initially allowed in spaces discussions and meetings and there were separate um, women's councils that were formed and there were difficulties with that as well because you have women from different economic backgrounds mm. speaking different languages. Mm. And when these women come together, you have to make sure that everyone can communicate their needs. And so absolutely, this is something that we still struggle with today. And I am very interested in gender-based violence, Mm. intimate partner violence. We have high rates of violence against women, and I'm I'm interested in in how it operates in public and private spaces, and there's conflicts and clashes between traditional and contemporary values, and just the idea of South Africa trying to figure out its identity, Mm. who we are, that there's a lack of togetherness, all of these things interact through my writing. I'm really interested in sort of digging into it and, and figuring out how these things are, how they interact, race, class, and gender. Right, right. Yeah, and I think now is probably a great time for you to read your poem, uh, Multiple Stories of Me, to us. It would be great to continue our discussion in the context of what you wrote. Okay, sure, I'll do that. Multiple stories in me. There is a still image of me, mouth wide open, screaming in agony, calling out to a future vision of me. The lines running under my eyes are taut, low-hanging cables, sky roots plucked as if to send vibrations into me. But somehow, the noise doesn't reach me. The sound is unreliable, flimsy, I climb into this image, into the scream, into the noiseless mouth. I'm in search of a voice that can sermonize all of the ways I've been, the voice grown tired of reciting milestones. As I reach into me, I see that I was never simply the color beige to begin with. A collection of film stills show that I fill in the space with proof of being alive. Certain stills show images of empty chairs and sofas because I sometimes imagine myself forgotten. An old film shows that I am vast and that when I am cloaked, I am in the shape of a castle, walled, 
impenetrable. Inside me lies a murderous city. In one image, I am cool girl in a cafe. She eats in a romantic way, spoon to the mouth, chocolate flake curls, heavy cream, crust pastry fudge dream, bittersweet. This is how someone's skin tastes for the first time. In my landscape shots, the earth is breathing. A shot of the exterior shows me walking in the street. The road is hot and boiling. I am a shallow steamed glass case dropped out of the mouth, the future vision of me. All of these, the personas in me, some of them seen through misty windows like blurry cars or smudged words on paper. They exist and they belong to me. Thank you. So I, I really enjoy reading this poem. And Thank you. I think you can tell by the reaction poem I sent you that I was reading it through a much more personal lens than... Mm. The, you know, the conversation we're having right now, which I can see now is also, could also be embedded as metaphors within your poem. So I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the poem, you know, how it relates to the personal as well as the larger context of South Africa. So a few years ago, while I was doing my master's, we were introduced to the idea of the researcher being responsible for the work that they do and to mm. be considerate when interacting with your subjects. Mm. And this idea of being responsible as a researcher, for myself, it means looking into myself first, understanding why I'm interested in the subject matter I write about and in that way being accountable. Mm. So a lot of my writing does start with myself. Mm -hmm. And that's where my self-narrative background comes in, that mm. I understand my motivations, my connection to the subject matter. And so it is quite personal. Mm -hmm. The line that I started with was, I see that I was never simply the colored beige to begin with. Mm. And that refers to my racial identity. Mm. In South Africa, I would be called colored. Mm. And I'm very aware that in the U.S., this mm -hmm. is a word that is um, not something that just slips out of one's mouth. The word is one that's quite heavy. Mm -hmm. And in South Africa, colored means mixed race. Mm. And so in South Africa, during apartheid, we would be categorized as non-white or black. Mm. But there was still a hierarchy that existed where colored people would be seen as above being black. And this is something that the apartheid government did intentionally mm -hmm. to prevent non-white groups of people coming together. Mm. And so that's sort of the link between looking at my own identity and connecting with the place that I find myself in. So I really wanted to look at who I am and I imagined my life in film still and what I would see if I was reflecting. And I feel like reflection is extremely important mm. for myself, for mm. people, that if you are aware of yourself, then you can become aware of others. And mm -hmm. I personally feel as though it's something that we 
need in South Africa that we tend to avoid looking at our difficult experiences. So I'm not only writing my healing through this poem, but I guess trying to figure out what healing looks like for South Africa. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I feel like, especially given the context of our conversation, is prior to you reading the poem that there is definitely a link and echoing of what you talked about in terms of what the country has been going through.、Mm. Do you feel like that was intentional, or was it just you know you can't help but reflect the environment that you're in? I think with how. With how much heaviness we still carry,、mm-hmm. I feel that so strongly in me. I'm very aware of my differences, even in a country where the majority of the population is non-white.、Mm-hmm. Racism is institutionalized. It's very much present in different kinds of experiences that people have, and so because it is still so much a part of how I've grown up. It's going to appear in my writing. Everything is so connected,、mm. and our democracy is quite young. It hasn't been so many years since the end of apartheid. So, I feel like in order to understand myself, I have to see myself socially and culturally、mm. um, that I'm not isolated. That my behaviors, my beliefs, are influenced by the. Culture and society that I am a part of.、Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that makes a lot of sense. I'm really interested in what you talked about in terms of being a part of a marginalized majority, which is an interesting concept that I don't think we've really had a chance to think about in the U.S. Because minority groups are exactly that.、Uh, we are in the minority. I think the only group. Where at least I am myself a part of that is a marginalized majority is women.、Mm. But again, this is not a conversation that's talked about, and I think one of the worries for people who are in the majority, which are more European or white Americans, is minorities reaching that majority number in terms of number, and、mm. and I think your what you just mentioned kind of. Signals a sort of future for us、uh, as well in the U.S. That even if minority people groups were to reach a majority in total, the fact is discrimination is not just going to magically go away. Yeah, absolutely. You know, after the end of apartheid, we had something called the Truth and Reconciliation Committee,、mm-hmm. where you had people sitting down together and. Families were traumatized through this process because they would have to listen to how their sons or daughters or family members how they were murdered、mm. when they disappeared. And many people criticized this form of reconciliation because it didn't bring healing.、Mm. Um, it felt like something where there wasn't accountability, and I can't even say what accountability should look like. It often feels like there's a kind of exhaustion.、Mm. So I think at the end of apartheid, there was this belief that everyone came together and simply ending it as a formal structure.、Mm. Uh, yes, there was the 
impression that that was the end of it and so seeing how things actually are I just I, I think that there is a general feeling of exhaustion and um, I don't know we've got to figure out what accountability will look like and it's going to be uncomfortable and I think just accepting that it is going to be an uncomfortable process and that it's a part of growing as a country and that we don't just automatically come together that's something that our country has to figure out yeah i I really appreciate you mentioning that because as you probably know the truth and reconciliation process in south africa is held up as the model for Mm. many conflicting communities uh, or uh, communities in conflict you know, I think it was talked about after the Rwanda genocides, you know, this idea of truth and reconciliation. And it is always talked about even now in terms of community building groups. Uh, I, I remember hearing about it, especially now that Black Lives Matter movement is gaining more ground. This idea of truth and reconciliation is always brought up as some kind of this is the way we should go about it. So it's Actually, I'm really grateful to hear uh, your point of view, who's lived, you know, either through it or actually heard about people you know going through it. And that was something that I had wondered about because <laughs> how does it help if you only go through the trauma but never the accountability, right? Mm, what was really interesting for me growing up when I was much younger, I would have experiences where because I'm mixed or biracial, um, Mm. I was so aware of my differences because of the way that people would look at my family, Mm -hmm. where they'd look and think, oh, everyone is a different color or shade. And I became so aware of that. And I wondered as a child, you have all these parents who've been through apartheid and have these really you know, feelings of anger or confusion, mm-hmm. and then they are raising us. And suddenly we are all attending schools together. Mm-hmm. And you have schools that had racist policies or structures. Mm-hmm. And suddenly that all has to quickly go away and we have to sit together. And all of that anger just never went away. And it's inherited. And it was just so strange for me growing up and just being really aware of people's feelings and the things that they were holding on to. So being able to face yourself, not just as a country, but people doing this individually, mm-hmm. it is extremely difficult. And for myself, looking at my personal feelings about different experiences that I've had in my life, that is something that is ongoing for me. Healing is ongoing. And so with South Africa's history of violence, Mm. the amount of healing or the scale of these huge emotions that people carry, the fact that the healing will be ongoing, that in itself is exhausting to think about. Right, right. Yeah, because I'm sure, as you know, when you're carrying multi-generational trauma, it is embedded Mm. in our behavior. And it gets us into cycles of trauma and cycles of, you know, these toxic relationships, toxic 
power dynamics in every aspect of relationship, not just romantic relationships, but that as well, right? And so there is the something that's always hanging over our heads in the past, and then the re-traumatizing that's happening because we are inadvertently repeating the dynamics that we've grown up with, and that's hard to get out of, even though I personally think that just talking about it is very important. At the same time, if we only just talk about it and the systematic or systemic changes are not being made or addressed, then the talking aspect, the communications aspect becomes very performative, right? It's not, it's not actually serving a real purpose then. Yeah, yeah that, that's absolutely true. When people get together and just talk and talk about it, I think here in South Africa we call it talk shops mm. because it seems like that's all that's ever done um, instead of seeing concrete actions being carried through. And people tend to get frustrated because of that as well. Mm. For people who still don't have access to basic needs in South Africa, this is something that is so frustrating for them that mm. today... There are some people that don't have access to water or mm. to roads or proper infrastructure. And so that's definitely frustrating. Yeah, yeah. I understand from what I've read that the inequality continues, right, because of this history of who gets to own property, who gets to have access to certain things, like the basic things even that you talk about, but also the bigger things that is able to help people accumulate wealth or find opportunities or better their lives. Going back to your poem, I see that I was never simply the color beige to begin with. You said you began with that line. So what made you decide to start writing this poem and from that line? So I wrote this during quarantine when I lived in Thailand uh, Mm. last year. And this was, I think, in March Mm. And I was involved in a poetry mentorship and we were asked to write a poem about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I happened to be spending a lot of time watching films during quarantine. And um, it reminded me of a time when I was much younger and I found it difficult to communicate my feelings. Mm-hmm. And so I would daydream a lot and I suppose that's why I fell in love with poems. Because I love this idea in poetry of showing and not just telling. And it's something that I learned through script writing and poem. Mm-hmm. Is that it's better to show and not just tell. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to imagine my life as a poem. And I felt like I was getting in touch with my inner child. Mm-hmm. Which for me is something that needs a lot of healing. Because I, I felt like I didn't have a space to say how I felt as a child. And so this fantasy world or the world of film became something where I could imagine myself doing or communicating in the ways that I wanted. And so for me, that's what I wanted to emphasize in the poem, that I am communicating the way that I did as a child through images or through fantasizing. Mm. And so it kind of works as a self-narrative where I'm creating a space of healing using the thing that helped me to survive. Mm. And and it, it comes down to not using um, 
let's say when you grow up as a child who doesn't have that space to communicate freely, you constantly think of surviving and each day everything that you do becomes that. Try not to make this person upset or consider mm. other people's feelings. And so I wanted to take something, this habit of mine of daydreaming as a child, mm-hmm. and I wanted to create it as a space of healing. And so this is what home is. It describes me. It's it's a way of really facing myself. And I like to use strong images because I'm not too concerned with structure. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether to say that I write in free verse, but mm. what's most important to me is to have images that allow people to see into me or to understand me. Mm. So I feel like that's the language that I've developed or the way that people can read me mm-hmm. um, in a way that might otherwise be difficult to do if they were simply having a conversation with me. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the trauma that you experience, even though you don't put them in a particular timeline, that people feel that there are things that are very traumatic that continues to be unsaid. It's almost like when you first begin a serious conversation with someone who's been through a lot, right? And in some ways, when we are in that space, when we're trying to speak with a new person, we are testing that person's willingness to listen to us, listen to our trauma, and maybe... Uh, That makes so much sense. Mm. You know, help us heal. And I feel that with your poem in that it's very carefully crafted in that uh, sort of, this is me, but I'm gingerly showing you something i'm giving you hints of something do you want to engage with me Mm, i'm just i'm smiling because all of this makes sense and it's true Mm -hmm. because this is something that i thought about making my work accessible and not being so caught up in the feelings that i'm trying to work through as i'm writing And I will admit that I'm someone who tries to carefully balance how much access people have to me. Mm -hmm. And I have to be careful of that when I'm writing because Mm. I don't want to be pomp or inaccessible. Mm. Yet, I guess I can't let go of, because it is so personal, the writing is so personal, I still can't let go of deciding how much I show and how I show that. So Mm -hmm. accessibility was definitely, it's something that I've been thinking about a lot Mm -hmm. because my writing has become so personal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it makes a lot of sense because, you know, as you said, if you grew up in a life where you're constantly have to worry about consider or be made to consider other people's feelings because not considering that uh, means a threat to your own survival. And then we carry that with us for the rest of our lives. Mm. I guess through my own experience with writing poetry and especially this poem, Mm -hmm. I think that's why I see poetry as a form of healing or that it has potential for healing because you face yourself and even looking at my practice as a writer, having to understand 
what is my process, how do I develop my poems, it then forces me to think about how could this work as a form of healing for other people. I'm, I'm so much more aware of how I work as a writer because of that. Mm-hmm. This poem brings so much of the, you know, as you said, the showing, not telling, and it is very sensual in many ways, especially when you were talking about the chocolate, eating the dessert, you know, in some ways making yourself a dessert. But you're saying it to begin with, that it is in one image, right? So, like, you you already put the question in the reader's mind of how real is this? You know what, the one thing that I'm extremely conscious of as a woman and a woman of color is how edible you are as a woman mm. uh, or how, and this word is so loaded, exotic. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, the, the, the word is so problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how people, you, you often have to manufacture yourself into something that is edible so that you don't step beyond a certain boundary and talking about myself like that it's sometimes how I, I I'm worried about how am I seen am, am I edible enough for the space for workspace or different kinds of spaces in public and and, and it, it, it it does comment on on women mm-hmm. um, being packaged into something that's edible enough and what happens when you step beyond that and and how do I see myself how do I own who I am and and how I'm represented because I want to decide how how I'm represented in different spaces right right this reminds me of my chat with another poet who also wrote about being consumed again as both a woman and a woman of color so Mm. this exoticism of you know being the spice in somebody's food but both is about being again consumed which means that as someone gets to know us uh, we kind of disappear in some ways Mm. i find myself stopping and thinking about the behaviors i'm performing and the more i feel the more I ask myself, who am I really? And I'm trying to figure out what is my narrative and and am I finding other people involved in deciding who I should be? And that becomes hard work. Mm-hmm. It's very hard work. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's exhausting when our sort of baseline behavior is to constantly consider other people's feelings. I mean, we're, women are being taught taught that anyway as as you know societally throughout <laughs> the world this is sort of like an underlying baseline for women's upbringing is that you have to consider everybody else's feelings but your own uh, and is the solution to completely go the other direction and just say you know forget everybody it's me, 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 because uh-huh. obviously it doesn't work for the people who do that. They end up quite uh, lonely in some ways. At the same time, it is exhausting having to always think about how we or who we are in terms of how others perceive us. Uh-huh. Well, that's, that's absolutely true. Mm. 
I would, I would love to talk with you forever, basically, about your poem because it's so rich in details. It's, it's got so much in it that could be unpacked. And I think you could tell by the poem that I sent you, which is Goodbyes. It's an older poem, and even when I wrote it, I wasn't like too thrilled with it. At the same time, when I was sending it to you, I was thinking, this has a very childish feeling to it. In comparison to your poem, where you know there are ch- carefully chosen images, it seemed like you were taking care to, as I said before, let us know a bit about the pain. But it was very tentative in terms of how much you want to reveal, like how much will people accept and such. Whereas my poem is written from a moment where I'm just like, screw it all, you know, kind of. <laughs> So I'm going to read that and then we can talk about this poem and also in context, in conversation with your poem. Oh, yes, please do. It's called Goodbyes. Goodbye to dead weight. Goodbye to flotsam jettison in my wake. Goodbye to frenemies. Goodbye to enemies quaking in my wake. Last year's nightmares become tomorrow's fuel. Today's transformation, yonder laughter, reflection brings and peels. Goodbye to grandparents. Goodbye to dead parents left long before flesh sets in rigor. Goodbye to old partners. Goodbye to rot relations set free to linger, sometime to scatter. Pain lives as a reminder for eyes forward bound less trapped, frozen within a wind-blasted salt pillar. A better fate awaits as outlook takes wings from destruction reborn, a soaring new being. Thank you so much for reading that. So I really loved the words that you were using, and I know that you just said, was it like just a declaration of really strong feelings? And I, I still wondered how you developed the poem did you carefully choose the words that you used because I I really love the words like flotsam jettisoned and I felt like a lot of these words suggested emotional labor experienced by the voice in the poem Mm -hmm. um, and leaving things behind and there was also this feeling of like holding yourself togetherness and the labor experience, you know, from doing that. So I feel this vulnerability, but also sort of holding yourself together or keeping people at a distance. So I, I really wondered about how you developed this poem. Mm. This is also the result of a workshop poem where we had different prompts. Mm. And this was a prompt on goodbye. And I was at a moment in my life where I felt a lot of hope. I was, I had recently moved to a new place. It felt very freeing. And also, I think this was at a time where I was uh, rudely ejected from a writing group. And I have found a new writing place group where I felt like I belonged. And so 
as a person who also grew up where I was told by action, maybe not in words, but definitely action, that my feelings don't really matter. That the best thing I could do is just not be heard. Um, ah. I, I think my personality is one to rebel against things like that. And so I was in a very comfortable moment where I felt like I could just say these things. And I have a tendency of not wanting to repeat my words. Um, ah. So I always try to think of different words for the same thing I'm saying. And I always try to have the thesaurus open. And so it was during the writing exercise that these words came up to me. And I believe flotsam and jettison, these are, especially flotsam, is something, a word that I've also used probably around the same time as this poem. So I'm not surprised that it came up again. And then also because I felt betrayed by the other writing group to whom I brought up an issue with unwanted come-ons from this uh, much older guy. That was really just uh, trigger my memories of unfortunately being assaulted again by an older guy. And the way that the group handled it was horrible, both races and sexes. So yeah, and this was after that when I felt like I found a new group that was better. But then now having the benefit of time, I realized it's still some of the old elements continued, you know, repeated itself. Mm. <laughs> you mentioned the word repetition. So I wonder, outside of the workshop that you did, do some of your poems have like a connection in terms of the themes or feelings that you look at? And then in terms of how you approach them? Yeah, yeah, I think it's very similar to life, right? Where we're repeating certain patterns. And then after mm. repeating those patterns and realizing them, because we're writers, we're reflecting on our lives and seeing similar things. And so you write about similar things, maybe not in the same language, or maybe even not writing the same scenario, but the dynamics are similar. So I've, this is definitely something I've written about over and over because I want to break these habits that I've been taught to be in and also repeated and sort of solidified. Uh, I'm hoping to break them down by self-analyzing through writing and reflection. So do you write a lot of your own experiences in your poems? Do you ever feel exhausted by that? And are you writing maybe as another voice in other poems? I think I write from a lot of different perspectives. I feel like similar to your experience because I've been taught to mine other people's feelings that I tend to disappear in my writing sometimes. I write about other people's problems. I write a, a lot about social issues because they do affect me. At the same time, you know, just reflecting on that and why, how I developed those habits, I also wonder about how, you know, my upbringing made me feel discomforted by the fact that I was writing about myself. Or there's a sort of a, a guilt, right? When I'm writing about myself, I feel like, well, maybe I should be writing about somebody else because, again, 
it's been taught to me that you should not be concentrating on yourself so much. And I think some of that lesson is good. It's good to have humility. It's good to think of not only yourself, but your place in the world. At the same time, when it becomes extreme, when it's constant self-effacing, again, we get into the habit of being consumed, just being there rather than having our own agency. So I wonder about that a lot. And and I'm interested generally, what kind of research do you do for your poems? Do you find yourself reading a lot, speaking to people? I'm really interested in that. On my own, I do a lot of, you know, like Googling. When it comes to social issue poetry, I'm usually writing in reaction to news articles that I've read. And then sometimes I would dig into certain facts and just to bone up on things that I don't really know the background of. So I do tend to research conversations like this that I've had over the past few years also come into my poetry, you know, sometimes I will reflect back on a conversation and then it will inspire me to write something. But that's less intentional than my Googling uh, and reading through just online research. I do research both my words, um, you know, through the thesaurus, as well as check on facts and maybe using an extended metaphor on a scientific thing to write about something else. Like I wrote a poem about a new moon and I read the scientific articles about the moon, these characteristics of the moon that I knew nothing about. And I put that in, but it was not a moon poem per se, but more my relationship or lack thereof with this particular person that I have feelings for. I'm really interested in then how you came to poetry or how it found you as a form of expression because you seem to have like an interest in science Mm -hmm. and that you enjoy looking up things and really understanding what you're going to use if you put it into your poetry. So I'm I'm, I'm just interested in, in how you found yourself writing poems. Well, it's really weird because... I just wrote a poem one day when I was a kid around like the beginning of my teenage years. Maybe I don't remember exactly what age I was around 9, 10, 11. It was completely inspired by a drawing I saw. I loved it so much. It moved me so much that I just wrote a poem. I know that in my background, my, my mom was very big on like reading literature to me. So I think that must have had a, a influence. But she read both, you know, prose and poetry to me. So I don't know why poem was the first writing I did or the first writing that I could remember me doing. And are there other forms of writing that you are involved in or do you focus primarily on poetry i've written prose plays i've written recently more satire because of the political situation that the u.s Mm. has been in i write short stories i write creative nonfiction. 
I just write. I'm not one of those people where I'm like, oh, this has to come in a certain form. I'm just like, I'm going to write and see what happens. Um, and then I wanted to come back to your poem. Since this came out of a workshop setting, I'm wondering, have you performed this poem live? And have you done that often? Or And do you feel comfortable doing that? This particular poem, I think I've only read it either in the workshop or... So there used to be uh, open mic right after the writing workshop that we would go to. I cannot recall right now whether or not I actually performed this poem at that open mic afterwards. Uh, I don't think I've read this particular poem in an open mic previously, but I have read personal poems at open mics. I know that the, the feelings that you wrote about, you mentioned with this poem in the workshop, did they feel immediate for you? Because often for myself, being in a workshop setting, I feel a lot of pressure to produce more than five lines and to have the end product ready. And sometimes it just doesn't come. And so a workshop setting for me is simply maybe a space to experiment and it's okay if I get maybe two lines out of it. So... Mm-hmm. I wondered if workshops for you, if it feels like a space where it's maybe easy to write or you don't feel an extreme amount of pressure to produce a full poem. I actually really enjoy workshops, not necessarily because they produce exhibitable work. I did find out when I went to workshop that I have the ability to write to prompt. Um, and what I uh. enjoyed about workshops, what I continue to enjoy about workshops is the fact that they make me think of things that I would not think about when I'm alone, just in my head, Uh. reflecting. And so they bring new perspective. And I really appreciate that because, you know, as I said before, I don't like repeating things. uh, And that includes repeating themes, repeating reflections so Uh, workshops sort of give me out of that rut and i i like sharing because i get excited when workshops help me generate things and i was like oh hey this is a piece that i want to share because this is a cool workshop but i think the workshop atmosphere really depends on who the coordinator is for the workshop and who leads it because sometimes it can become a very toxic environment where people, you know, it's just people, right? Because every setting, depending on their personality or depending even just how they feel at that moment, it could turn very badly. Just any workshop where, where people are writing, right? And especially since writers tend to write from the personal experience, first and foremost, it's a very vulnerable thing to then share that work. So for facilitators who are maybe not in the best emotional space, they could make the workshop really traumatizing for people. Oh, that's absolutely true. That's interesting because I wonder, have, have you run any poetry workshops? Is that something that you're interested in doing? Because I'm thinking of the poem that you just read. What kind of prompts are you interested in giving to participants or are there themes that you like to to? Funny enough, I have not given a poetry workshop yet, uh, though I am interested in doing that. My play is so full, so I'm very wary 
about starting new things, despite the fact that I would love to run a workshop. And again, because I like to explore, I don't think I'm the kind of person who would stick to a particular theme or format. I know that I mentioned a lot that I see poetry and its potential for healing, and I would love to see people writing themselves through poetry. Mm-hmm. And I just wondered if there's specific experience that you'd like people to have with this poem or just with poetry in general. Do you see it maybe as a form of healing or, or a way to advocate for yourself? What would you like people to experience through your poetry? I think once you've written your poem, no matter how much you try to workshop it, how much you try to make it clear, people are going to take your poem however they take your poem because they come from a different test space, a different experience. Even if they share similar, whether it's cultural or psychological upbringings or whatnot, I mean, there, there are things that they're going to vibe with. At the same time, I don't feel like it's always going to be a perfect alignment. It's funny you mentioned about writing as a healing uh, process, right? I did come back to poetry for healing purposes, not because I said, uh, you know, sat down to say, oh, if I write poems, then I will heal. But more like suddenly I picked up poems again after decades of not being around it. And then I was like writing a bunch of poems. And the more miserable I was, the more I was writing. (laughs) And I felt that it was a vehicle for giving myself voice again. So it was definitely a healing process. At the same time, because I have no idea who's going to interact with my poems, even, you know, in an open read, or I don't tend to like hand my poems to specific people. So I don't have really real expectations of what they will take away. Obviously, as a writer, I want my poems to resonate with people. At the same time, if they don't, I'm just like, eh, there are 9 billion people in the world. You know, like, (laughs) somebody will vibe with it. (laughs) Mm. So it's funny that you mentioned working with a thesaurus because I, I guess it just comes from me wanting to just dig into people or figure them out. Maybe it's that's why I experienced it this way. But I, I actually sat down and I looked carefully at the words that you used and and I went into the dictionary and I suppose I really wanted to dig in and, and figure out like how were you trying to use this word. So that's how I experienced it. I actually sat down with the dictionary and looked at the words and created images in my mind and That was such a joyful experience for me, I guess, because I enjoy reading and and figuring out why was this word used and and what's the meaning of it. And Mm. I guess maybe that's why I mentioned feeling there was vulnerability, but also I imagined the voice of the poem as someone holding it together or feeling like this is how much I will let you know about myself or, or just when you experience emotional labor, Mm. There's the part of you that feels like you have to show that you're strong. And so that's how I sat down and experienced it. And I really enjoyed reading it in that way and understand. Or or that's what I took from it. Mm. Um, Yeah. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate that. And I think, you know, every reading, whether it's poetry or prose, 
is a revelation, right, of the writer, whether or not that writer is writing in an I character or whether or not that I character, if it does appear in the writing, is actually about the writer. So I, I really appreciate you taking the time to comb through my poem as you have. And I, I'm glad that, that you enjoyed it. It does make me feel happy to know that you engage with it in that way. So thank you for sharing that. And I think the elements that you talk about are all there, right? Because the poem didn't just end with all these goodbyes. It wasn't just, it wasn't just flippant. It also talked about the pain. It also talked about the hopes for a better future. So it's not like I was completely free of the pain that I was feeling. So I really appreciate you picking up on those things. Towards the end of the poem, for myself, I feel this sense of dignity that the voice of the poem experiences. And I think it's a beautiful way to get to the end of the poem. I really just felt like there's still a sense of dignity that this person has and it feels like this person goes on to create boundaries and I imagined all these beautiful things happening for that voice and I really appreciated that as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, I, I wish it was a straightforward path. Creating boundary is definitely something that I've worked on and struggled with. Ironically, Though this is a happy ending poem or relatively happy ending poem, my poems tend to end on devastation. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes they would start out happy and then end up on something just like horrifying. (laughs) And and I feel like um, as writers, sometimes if we want people to appreciate us for who we are, we have to be honest and show who we are. And so I would just write what it is. I always write what I feel at the moment and write it. I don't necessarily show it to people. (laughs) I, I don't necessarily show some of the really incredibly dark things that I've written. Because of this worry, obviously, that that we would not be accepted. And I think you probably can relate to that, given what you wrote about. Given all the trauma that we've experienced in an environment where lashing out is not really an option. There is a lot of swallowing of anger and bitterness and that mental and physical exhaustion that you talked about. Because, you know, you could have lots of good night's sleep and still just feel exhausted. Oh, yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that is from carrying a lot of both physical and psychological trauma. But even, even more so the psychological, because I think even in today's age, the psychological traumas are not dealt with because they are not readily seen. It's a deep, even I feel like, the, the tissue in your body holds on to it and to unlearn all of these unhealthy behaviors or to bring things to the surface mm. that will happen once you're ready for that to happen and that itself can take a long time yeah yeah exactly especially 
you know, while we're trying to figure out who we are, because we're not a constant, right? Nobody is a constant. We're all changing, and every experience we have changes us in some way. So I I can relate to your, especially this ending, right, where you talk about versions of you being seen as through misty windows, like blurry cars or smudged words on paper. It's not clear, but it is part of you. This uncertainty, and we all have that because we are ever changing. So the the only certainty that we have is the past because they already happened. They're set.、Uh, I mean, even that is not certain, right? Because our memory doesn't always tell us exactly what happened. It's a our own perspective of what happened, and b every time we remember something, we're not actually remembering the incident. But apparently, we remember the last time we remembered it. So we're making copies, and we're making copies of copies. So every time, it becomes more and more blurry.、Mm, that makes me think of something I was reading about today called the Rashomon effect,、mm. and that being about unreliable narrator,、mm-hmm. um, and that we've all got our own perspective of something, and the issue might be that we refuse to face ourselves and the truth, whatever that is, and so we might be lying to ourselves. So my mind just immediately jumped to that because I was reading about.、That. I can definitely relate, and I think what you just paraphrased to me sounds like the writer, whoever wrote that, was talking about a willing neglect of what the truth is. Whereas I feel like. Even if we want to get at the truth, the fact is we can only get at our perception of the truth, right? Our perspective on the thing, and it is because we are not all-knowing. We can never get to the entire truth. We could try. I think. I think the closest we come to it is, ironically, this idea of truth and reconciliation, where we are talking with each other. But then again. I have not been in a truth and reconciliation session, so I don't even know how that's run. I believe that it, it's extreme. It's traumatizing to have to sit and listen to very difficult.、Um, you know, listening to 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 to, to how you lost members of family, and it, it, it's. If I have to describe, I'm I'm saying it very basically,、mm. but it is a process of sitting down and and listening to the truth that it's put in front of you, and that this is the reality. This is how people have gone missing or who were killed, and that is just reliving the trauma after so many years. And so that's why that kind of setting received so much criticism、mm. because there was no. Accountability. It was just re-experiencing trauma. Right, right. I think one of the things that people see as a positive effect of that is that the victims' families or the victims themselves are telling their story. The positive is that the people who victimized them is made to hear them because we seldom get that opportunity. Or at least that's the positives that people told me about, or I've read about. But going back to what you're saying about accountability, though, is like first of all, if they're made to listen, will they actually listen? Even if they're present, even if their ears are forced open, are they absorbing the information? Right. 
because our minds are incredibly good at distracting. Um, and then second of all, if they just sat through it, again, maybe some victims or victims' families get some satisfaction of being able to say their piece to the perpetrators or perpetrators who uh, are the people who are part of a system of perpetration. So there might be some satisfaction to that in itself. At the same time, again, as you mentioned, if there's no accountability, then there is always a gap that's missing that the trauma can fall into and allow to continue, allow to grow even, and, you know, to continue multi-generationally this trauma and the pain cycle. So how is that being addressed, right? So I'm, I'm very interested in this process and how it is being used because similar to the workshop environment, the facilitator or the facilitators, their biases could come into play and it could be a very traumatizing experience if it's done by people who do not have the sensitivity or who are plagued by their own psychological traumas. Mm, it makes me think as well of being an educator, for example, in a school maybe that was during apartheid that was all white. Hmm. And suddenly, after apartheid, you have a multiracial setting. Mm -hmm. And you as a teacher are not equipped to confront the biases that you have. So in the same way, people, you mentioned being in that setting, the truth and reconciliation setting. Mm -hmm. And as a facilitator, not having the tools to, to confront who you see as being human, what your definition of a human being is, right. who you see as being credible, whose story is credible. Mm -hmm. So to confront all of that and to be prepared to do that, it is so complex because I don't think as a country we were prepared to really do that. Right, right. It's difficult because we're not... We're not separate from history. We're part of it, right? We're all carrying a part of it with us when we're involved in these processes. And, and colonization is a huge part of human history. Unfortunately, <laughs> it casts a very long shadow on the process. I, I really appreciate this conversation with you, even though we didn't get to talk about your poem as much as I would have loved to, because again, it has so much in and so many layers to at least conclude with the podcast. I wonder if you can tell us, A, if you have any good open mics to recommend to us, and also B, how do we follow you via social media, your website and whatnot? Before the panini happened, the, let me just say pandemic, um, <laughs> I was attending open mics in Korean, Thailand. Mm. And in Thailand, well, Thailand at the moment is seen as a low-risk country mm. um, in terms of the pandemic. So I'm aware that the poetry community has obviously following regulations with COVID-19, but um, the poetry community has started getting back together physically. Mm. And so in Thailand, Bangkok, Thailand, there is a poetry committee there. It's L-Y-L-U. Mm. Um, 
Lailu, I think. Mm. So they are hosting open mic sessions. Mm. And then in Korea, well, the last time I was in Korea was about 2018. So I'm not sure what's going on there, but I will have to say that I've been mostly appearing on the Los Angeles Poet Society open mics. Mm -hmm. That's where my focus has been. And it was a happy accident that I found this group because I had a friend who recommended that I join the community. And I feel very much like I've made a good connection with them. Even though I'm from another country, I feel welcomed by that community. So right. that is the community that I'm primarily a part of. Mm -hmm. And how do we follow you online? So you can follow me on Instagram. My Instagram page is just my name, Marsha Peshki. Mm -hmm. So that's M-A-R-C-I-A-P-E-S-C-H-K-E. Um, I post all of my creative work there. And then you can also find some of my work on my YouTube channel. Mm -hmm. And again, you can just search for my name, Marsha Peshki. Great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate our talk together and you enlightening us about South Africa's history and also present situation because I think nothing you read online or in books really is the same as people's stories from those, uh, their personal experiences. Thank you so much for the space, for allowing me to share that. Of course, of course. As always, you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter at poetsandmuses.com. Now, in addition to the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to the Poets and Muses podcast on your preferred podcast platforms. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you have a safe and healthy week, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.